If you have your Bibles, Second Samuel. Uh, here's what we're going to do, and I, I never. I, this is not by uh, virtue of a complaint at all, but you know this overview, and I'm glad we're doing it. I don't know how many of you have seen some of the articles in the newspapers of late uh, concerning uh, the um, biblical illiteracy of Americans. Uh, man, even at uh, a prestigious school in, in Massachusetts, I forget forget which one. Um, uh, he uh, even uh, has written a book about that and just bemoaning the fact that there's so many people who don't know the basic things about the Bible. And so one of the things that I really like about this class is we're doing this Old Testament overview and we're sort of covering all the books of the Old Testament. Uh, what is challenging, of course, to those of us who are doing it, Walter and myself and the professor from Dallas, I guess, is you see the third uh, gentleman, uh, is that, uh, you know, when you're, when you're talking about a book uh, like Exodus, which I did a few weeks ago and... Uh, uh, the ones that Walter and, and the professor are doing, um, and one like this morning, it, it's really a, it's a, it's a flyover. It's a very quick tour because there's so much uh, in these books. There's so much in the Old Testament. Beth and I were talking about it, and, uh, you know, we both agree that uh, while most preaching takes place and teaching in the New Testament, the Old Testament seems to me, uh, of the two, more fascinating in terms of a, uh, insight into human nature. And that nothing is, uh, there is no example of that that is any uh, truer uh, than Second Samuel. Now, you may remember the last time I was here, back before I forgot the one in April, in March, I guess it was, uh, that I suggested you take notes. Uh, always uh, invite my students to take notes on anything they want, and we do have a helpful overhead thing. I hope I got that right, because I sent that to April Edwards uh, several days ago, and and when we get to it, that's, that's what is going to help you. But let me read an introduction to our uh, study on Second Samuel this morning, if I may. Few books in the Bible are filled with more raw emotion than this second book of the prophet Samuel. It contains as much lust, ambition, passion, sadness, mystery, vengeance, crime, intrigue, and power plays as any popular television miniseries or best-selling novel. It is Shakespearean in its dimension. The murder, the manipulation, the mayhem, and mutilation found in this Old Testament book would make the Sopranos blush. Its pages tell us of rape, incest, adultery, deceit, jealousy, rebellion, murder, and greed. That's all found in 2 Samuel. That's what you say to any non-Christian critic who says, well, the Bible is just a bunch of whitewashed stories for children. Uh, that is hardly the case. The Bible is the unvarnished look at human nature in all of its glory and all of its debauchery and all of its depravity as well. And Second Samuel illustrates that in spades. And yet, also in Second Samuel, the book we're going to look at this morning, we also see God's chosen man as a leader of a growing and powerful nation. We learn of God's blessing, His protection, and of His covenant promise. A promise that will change the history of a nation, Israel, and the world and impact eternity. We witness nobility, generosity, wisdom, and largeness of heart on the part of the king. And we glimpse the trace of God's plan for humanity's salvation in chapter 7 in the Davidic Covenant. In spite of its record of ambitions, battles, and evil that we find in its pages, Second Samuel also gives us an eternal perspective. And in few places in the Old Testament do we find God's grace more sublimely manifest. This is the story of a great but a flawed man, King David. God called him a man after his own heart, 1 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 14. And though this handsome young shepherd boy slew a giant, became a hero to millions, and led a great people, 
we find in Second Samuel that he had difficulty conquering his own carnal urges. His life and his reign remind us that all of us are fallen creatures and we are living in a fallen world. You can't read the life of David. You can't read an account of his generals and even his own family without coming to that inescapable conclusion. The prophet Jeremiah was indeed right. The heart is deceitful, he says in Jeremiah 17.9, above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Second Samuel, which was originally written as the second part of First Samuel. Originally, this was one book, and it was segmented out. A book of history authored around approximately 930 B.C. by an undetermined writer records the assumption of David to the throne and his early military victories and his consolidation of power. That's found in the first ten chapters. So if you're taking notes, you may want to write down... Uh, you put an up arrow and write chapters 1 through 10 because we see David ascendant in the first 10 chapters of Second Samuel. He's on his way up. He's winning military victories. He's expanding his kingdom. He's consolidating his power. Things are going well. Second Samuel introduces a colorful cast of characters. Listen to this. Including several headstrong and valorous generals, a charismatic and tragically ambitious son, a beautiful mistress, the crippled son of a, den, of a dead best friend, and a courageous prophet. We see all of them in this overview. I hope we have time for that. Second Samuel is not just a story of a man, but of a nation. It tells us of worship and praise, the uniting of a kingdom, the establishment of a capital, and the plan for a temple. It reveals the peculiar place of the Jewish people in the panoply of divine redemption. Second Samuel teaches us, and here's where we go to the overhead. I, let's see, let's put that up there and see what happens. Do we have that? Okay, good. Boy, that's exciting. It's the first time I've done that, you know. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still catching up with the technology of the pivot. When I was preaching, it was, they just had to look and listen to me, and it was, an, it was a horrible thing. But now we've got, uh, we've got this. So the, number one is the growth of Israel. Yeah. The kingdom of the Jewish people is expanded and consolidated under King David's reign. Number two, we see in Second Samuel the greatness of leadership. David exemplifies wise, compassionate, courageous, principled, and ambitious leadership. Though he sins, he is sensitive to rebuke, he's quick to repent, he's humble in the acknowledgement of his moral frailty, and he is sincere in his desire to truly be God's man. Number three, the importance of worship. David brings the ark to Jerusalem, desires to build the temple, and leads the people in praise. Chapter 6 says that David and the whole house of Israel we're celebrating with all their might before the Lord. Number four, the bloodline of salvation. We see that in Second Samuel. Chapter 7 contains the everlasting promises of what we call the Davidic covenant. That through David's heirs, the king of kings would come, whose stone would be eternal, Jesus Christ. From David's bloodline. And then number five, the flaws in great men. Second Samuel teaches us about that. David had feet of clay. Despite God's blessing and honoring him, he attributes his attributes and his strengths were great. So too were his flaws and his failings. It's small wonder that David reminds us in his Psalms not to place our trust in princes, but only in God himself. Number six, the tragic consequences of sin. Second Samuel tells us about how David's family suffers division and immorality and death following David's sin with Bathsheba, which takes place in the 11th chapter. 
Number seven, the courage of speaking truth to power. We learned that in Second Samuel as a prime example of it. Nathan's firm reprimand of the king is an act of righteousness and considerable moral and, yes, political courage. Because, after all, this is the king, the most powerful person in the kingdom. And Nathan confronts him directly and straightforwardly with the words, You are the man. We're going to look at that story today. And number number eight, and finally, the transcending sovereignty, the abiding presence, and the secure promises of God. God constantly guides and protects David, and even in the king's impurity, folly, and in his pride, God does not destroy him or remove him from power. God's eternal plan of salvation, made plain in his covenant promise to David in chapter 7, transcends the foibles of a great but mortal king. God's word and his plan exceed David's sinfulness. Now, if you're looking for a theme verse, I've picked a few. And uh, they are found in uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, and verse 16. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And now we want to turn, with what time we have left, to uh, Jack's list of favorites. We have that? Ah, there it is. Okay, cool. Uh, and the first one is, if you're taking notes, this, is, this makes it a little easier. An eloquent eulogy, David mourns for Saul and Jonathan, uh, how the mighty are fallen. And we read about this in the first chapter of Second Samuel. Second Samuel opens with a poignant account of the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan. Saul meets a tragic end, we read at the close of uh, 1 Samuel and the beginning of the second uh, book of Samuel. He chooses to fall on his own sword rather than be taken by his enemies, the Philistines. The prophet Samuel, who had first anointed King Saul, had told him that his kingdom would be torn from him. There is a dramatic account of this. If you're taking notes, I went back and and read it again. And and, uh, it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're not going to take time to look at that. But in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel has visited uh, a, uh, a medium. Uh, and, uh, no, excuse me. I don't think that's when that happens. Uh, it's when uh, uh, God has told Samuel, Samuel has spoken, uh, God has spoken through Samuel, told him, that you've got to go in and you've got to wipe the incident where you're supposed to kill all of the, all of the people and all of the cattle and livestock. And uh, Saul decides on his own that he's going to keep some of those. And he disobeys God's command. And Samuel comes to him and he says, what is that bleeding I hear? And, uh, and that account is found in the 15th chapter. And then uh, uh, what happens is that uh, 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 Samuel starts to, uh, uh, starts to uh, go away. He's, he's condemned to Saul. He's basically uh, written him off. And Saul uh, reaches out and grasps Samuel's, uh, the hem of Samuel's uh, prophetic robe. And it rips. There's a, there's a, it's torn. And then Samuel turns back to Saul. And I wish I had been there to see that dramatic moment. And says to him, just as this robe has been uh, torn, God is going to tear the kingdom away from you, Saul. And he tells him then. And so this is uh, the fulfillment 
of uh, Samuel's uh, prophecy, his tragic prophecy concerning the kingdom of uh, Saul and the reign of uh, King Saul. And now with Saul dead and David's closest friend Jonathan also slain in battle, David mourned with eloquence in his tribute to the compromised king and the noble prince who had forged an intimate friendship with David. I hope uh, in the next uh, 23 minutes uh, to give you just a little taste of some of the eloquence that is in the Bible, uh, the rich language of the Bible. I think sometimes that uh, with the age like this, unless it's Scripture up there, and often it is, uh, uh, with where we've gone with the modern church and, uh, and the contemporary direction of it, which is basically good, uh, and uh, disagree with some of it, but most of it's good, and you know that changes are going to take place in the church. But one of the great dangers, and I don't know how you compensate for this, uh, in, in the age of modern technology, is that we lose an appreciation for the rich language of the Bible itself. You know, the, the written and spoken word is still powerful. I know we people like to see visuals. We are a visual people, and our attention span has been reduced to about eight and a half minutes. But we, we, we and so we like, uh, you know, acting and drama and uh, music and things like this. But the Bible is filled with such rich language, and I hope that we can illustrate that. I want you to listen to, to uh, David, Morn, uh, Saul, and Jonathan. Just listen to what he says. And, uh, and this, uh, one of these expressions, how the mighty art fallen, has even become a, a catchphrase uh, in, uh, in the secular world. Uh, when someone falls from power, we say, oh, how the mighty have fallen. I used to hear that. I say, where did that come from? Well, it comes from Second Samuel and from David's eulogy to Saul and Jonathan. Here's what he says. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. Let me say parenthetically that that love, stronger than the love of, uh, of women, uh, has nothing to do with any implied homosexual uh, relationship between Jonathan and David. Uh, that didn't occur. There's no evidence of it. What it means is that it was a love that was deep and abiding, and, and David was merely illustrating the uh, intimate love and compassion that was mutual between uh, himself and his very best friend on earth, Jonathan. We love our friends. We love our wives, but we also use the word love, I do, to describe my very closest friends. I have a friend that's been my best friend for over 30 years, and I love him, and his love is important to me. And, it, and David, in mourning, uses this as a, as a mere illustration, but it has nothing to do with any sort of physical uh, relationship. And then he says, how the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. Now, in chapters uh, 2 through 6 of Second Samuel, we read of the continuing civil war. If you're taking notes, you may want to note that. That's not up here on the uh, overhead. Between the followers of Saul and those of David. Uh, David uh, gained strength. Saul's forces weakened. That's, that's the general trend. David's expansion and consolidation of power is contained in chapters 2 through 6. The establishment of the capital in Jerusalem, very significant. And the bringing of the ark to the new capital city which becomes nicknamed, by the way, if you're taking notes, the City of David. It's called the City of David. 
Jerusalem. That's the new capital because David establishes that as the capital of Israel. In chapter 5, we read of David being made king over all of Israel. In verses 4 through 5 and then verses 10 and 12, I'd like to read that in chapter 5. Okay, chapter 5, verses 4 through 5 and 10 and 12. Listen to this. David was 30 years old when he began his reign. Not much older than our oldest daughter. He was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in all. So he reigned between the age of 30 and the age of 70. A lot of changes in a person's life between the time they're 30 and the time they're 70. But that's how long King David uh, reigned. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron, first of all, for seven years and six months. And then he reigned from Jerusalem over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Uh, By the way, I'm reading this scripture from the New Living Translation. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and had blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. He confirmed David as king and he had blessed his reign because God was intent on blessing the people of Israel. So he gave them a king after Saul who could be their great leader. Number two. On my list of favorites, the one that I'd like to spend a little bit of time uh, talking, we've got about nine of these, so we'll move right along, uh, is uh, found in chapter 7, a legacy and a covenant. God promises David immortality through his bloodline. Your kingdom. Nathan, God speaks through the prophet Nathan who came to David, and, and, and God says to David, to Nathan, your kingdom will last forever. Forever. Eternal kingdom. In a lengthy and detailed exchange, which we find in chapter 7, God speaks to the prophet Nathan and foretells God's divine plan for Israel, and more specifically, his plan for the bloodline of David. God promises David that the throne of Israel will always belong to David and his descendants. In verse 16 of chapter 7, we read these words, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. This great covenant, although not called a covenant in this chapter, it is elsewhere referred to, as a covenant, and if you're taking notes, write down the Davidic covenant. David with an IC. The Davidic covenant. That's what this is. There are the whole uh, list of covenants uh, found in the Bible, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. This is the Davidic covenant. Uh, And it foreshadows the coming of the promised Messiah through David's royal bloodline. And Jesus was the direct descendant. So here in chapter 7, the reason I picked this is, because it is significant in understanding that Jesus was to come through David's line. You need to know that. That's, that's vitally important. You say, well, where did David descend from? Who did David descend from? Uh, excuse me, Jesus descend from. Who did Jesus come from in his line? It's directly from King David. And we read that here. Okay? So chapter 7 is just a, is a hint of that. It's the foretelling of that. Uh, and that's very significant to understand in terms of Old Testament theology and, for that matter, New Testament theology. Because we know that there's a single strand of uh, of red, of crimson, running from Genesis to Revelation. And it is the story of God's salvation uh, for mankind. And so here in chapter 7, we see the introduction of the Davidic covenant. In his response, David very humbly, and David was of all things, no matter what else we read about him today, and you have heard about him and read about him, uh, and all of his failures and faults, he was a genuinely humble man, which is why he was so quick to repent when... You know, he got a, a kick in the seat of the pants. 
for what he'd done wrong. He was not proud or haughty or arrogant. And his response is found in verse 18, in part, uh, to God saying, you are the one, David, your throne's going to be established forever. Uh, it's your bloodline that's important. Uh, who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? In verse 21, David proclaims, how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And then chapter 8 tells more of David's military victories. Number 3, David's gracious generosity. Mephibosheth is invited to the king's table. That's another account that I've chosen to sort of a, to highlight this. These are just a series of highlights in 2 Samuel. It's not the whole story. I'll try to fill you in on just very quickly in a sentence or two what happens. But there are 24 chapters in this uh, very exciting and, and very action-packed book. And uh, we've only got 40 or 50 minutes to go through it. So, number three is David's gracious generosity. Mephibosheth is invited to the king's table. I will surely show you kindness. This is found in chapter 9. David demonstrates his continuing love for his dead best friend, Jonathan, by showing gracious kindness and hospitality and generosity to Jonathan's crippled son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, and don't think I didn't practice that, kind of refresh my pronunciation a couple of times before I came here this morning. Uh, Mephibosheth, it's spelled up there. You can see how it is, uh, how it's spelled if you want to write it down. As a baby, he had been accidentally dropped, Mephibosheth had, by his nursemaid while she was trying to escape the Philistine army. And both of his feet were permanently injured. Uh, back before they had uh, the kind of uh, surgery uh, that our daughter Olivia has benefited uh, so wonderfully from, they couldn't do much about that. Uh, something in the way he landed, apparently. But anyway, he had crippled feet, and that's he was for the rest of his life. Now, this act of kindness, which is found in chapter 9, clearly shows David com- David's compassion and his loyalty, and it reveals his tender heart. It is a touching story. David restores all of Saul's land to his grandson. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, so he's Saul's grandson. And the land had been taken, and uh, and, and David restores all of his grandfathers, all of King Saul's land to Mephibosheth, gives him that. And not only that, but goes further and provides for Mephibosheth's son, Micah. I'm glad, Ron, that Mephibosheth named his son Micah. That's, uh, that's at least a little bit of uh, relief. Uh, in verse 13, uh, we read of David's kindness, really uh, summarized, I think, quite nicely and quite poetically. It says, says this in the 13th verse, And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Where David Because he always ate at the king's table. And then it says, and he was crippled in both feet. So do you see it? The long table of the king stretched out there in his palace. And everyone is gathered around the king's table for a sumptuous meal. And then you listen and you hear down the long ornate hallway of the palace. Come. 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 Probably more like this. Probably more like a... Maybe that's Mephibosheth, and he's coming, and they're all going to wait for him to get there, because he's crippled in both feet, but he's coming, and he always ate at the king's table. This was the magnificent and extravagant generosity and kindness of King David. And I choose to believe that that's one of the reasons that despite the fact that David messed up so many, many, many times, God still blessed him 
and God didn't strike him down. He didn't kill him, and he never took away uh, either his glory or his kingdom, despite the fact that God had ample reason to do so. But he didn't. And I think one of the reasons is because God knew David's heart. And when God said, David is a man after my own heart, I choose to believe, and this is Wyman theology, that God said that because he knew David's heart. When he said, David is a man after my own heart, it's because he peered into David's heart and saw that he had a heart for God, despite the fact that he was, as we see, quite mortal. In spite of that, um, without doubt, this act of kindness pleased the Lord. Chapter 10 uh, tells of David's triumphs over the Amalekites. We're not going to stop there. Number four. Number four. The lust of the eye. David sins with Bathsheba. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We read about uh, David's sin with Bathsheba in chapter 11. And so now we move from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood to the house of the rising sun. From gracious hospitality to lust-driven invitation. David is bored. He's bored. He stayed at home while his army goes to war. First mistake. Satan loves to strike in boredom and complacency and depression. The other thing to note is, and the Bible, the chapter here is very explicit in this, it's springtime. And, of course, springtime is when love is in the air, as the song says. And uh, so David's got a lot of things going against him. He's made a, a very faulty decision in not going out to battle with his soldiers and staying home while they go out to fight. He's got nothing to do. He's read Newsweek seven or eight times and uh, People magazine, and he's watched TV, and uh, he's ch- channel surfing, and he is bored out of his gourd. Bored out of his gourd. And uh, then we read that uh, from the roof of his palace, he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And so David sings, splish, splish, splash, he was taking a bath. That's what he's, that's, no, that's not in here. I don't think that's in that chapter, those words. But uh, he sees her and she's taking a bath. By the way, if you want to know uh, how to pronounce or spell her name, it's B-A-T-H, Bathsheba, taking a bath, Bathsheba. So that's uh, how you, uh, no, it's not Bathsheba, it's Bath, B-A-T-H, Bathsheba. And uh, here we see, uh, this. Uh, here, I'm going to give you just a short version of the rest of this sordid story. It is a pivotal event that changed forever the course of David's life, changed his reign, and impacted his nation. First of all, David summons Bathsheba to his palace, and he commits adultery. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. Number two, David now summons Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and tells him to take a break from fighting and to visit his wife figuring that if he stayed with his wife and uh, had uh, was intimate with her, and uh, then the baby would be sort of his. It wouldn't be the king's, and he's covered up his tracks, if you know what I mean. Uh, but Uriah is a very dutiful soldier, and that doesn't quite work, because Uriah sleeps outside the palace, and he never goes to his own house to be with his wife. Uh, number three, David tries again to get to Uriah to go home. He does it not just once, but he attempts it twice. But this man has a will of steel, and he again refuses to go to his beautiful wife, even though the king gets him drunk first. I mean, is anybody other than me fascinated with this sort of thing being in the Bible? You're awake, aren't you? I mean, he gets Uriah drunk, thinking that if he gets him drunk, he'll go. And he wants Uriah at home, at his home, with Bathsheba. Because she has sent word to the king already and said, Hey, king. I'm pregnant. David knows that Bathsheba's pregnant. That's why he's doing this. Because he's afraid there's going to be a scandal. And uh, But uh, 
Uriah, even though he's drunk, he still doesn't go home to be with his wife. Uh, number four, now David, desperate, tells his military chief of staff, General Joab, to place Uriah on the front lines of battle and then suddenly pull the other troops back at the signal, leaving Uriah on the front line alone and unprotected. This time David gets his way and Uriah is killed. He's killed on the front lines of battle. But David enters into General Joab with a conspiracy and says, you know, you put Uriah out there with all the others and then pull all the others back. Leave Uriah there. He's not going to know what's going on and it will be too late and the Philistines will kill him. And they did. So David uh, conspires to have Uriah murdered. And then David uh, makes Bathsheba his wife and she bears him a son. It seems that David had pulled this off. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you and you're kind of following along and taking notes, here's a note that I want you to take, please. There was just one little problem, and we discover it in the final verse of this amazing and depressingly evil story that we find in the pages of Scripture. It's recorded there for all posterity and for our own edification and learning. Every story in the Bible, even one like this, is there for a reason. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Verse 27. Number five. None of one of my favorite accounts. Truth to power. Nathan confronts David. You are the man. And we read this in chapter 12. If ever there was a scriptural example of courageously telling it like it is, Nathan's confrontation of the king is it. Nathan begins by telling a touching story of two men, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had many sheep. Nathan tells the king, but the poor man had only one. It was a little baby lamb that the man's family had made into a gentle pet. Nathan tells David, and I quote from the scripture, it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. Or that Jonathan, I mean, that uh, Nathan really knew how to tell a story, didn't he? He's telling this story about these two men. This, this rich guy has got all kinds of sheep. He's very wealthy, and this poor man's got one, and it's a little baby lamb that he cuddles and takes care of and feeds with a little bottle. Can't you just picture it? You've seen, we've all seen pictures of it, and you probably had them, and so you know. And, and so this is a very touching story, and David's very engrossed in it, and he's listening carefully. But, but then Nathan goes on and says, well, King, here's how the rest of the story goes. When a guest arrives to visit the rich man, instead of killing one of his many sheep that he raised for that very purpose, the rich man orders the poor man's pet lamb taken from him and slaughtered and fed to his guest. King David is shocked. And it says that he was furious. And he told the prophet Nathan, the man who would do such a thing deserves to die. Let me at him. Who is he? We'll bring him to the king. We'll bring justice for this poor man. And the prophet Nathan, he stops and he stares at the king. Excuse me for doing this. He stares at the king and he points out his long, bony, prophetic finger and he says, You are that man. Wow. Talk about drama. Talk about high drama. You are that man. And then he lets David know that Nathan knows all about what's happened with David and Bathsheba. And he pronounces the judgment, God's judgment, the harsh judgment upon the king, his family, and his reign. 
and that's found in verses 7 through 14. We're not going to take time to read it, but uh, you'll find it. Uh, you'll find it there. Your family will live by the sword, Nathan tells David, because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. Your family will live by the sword. The King James Version says, The sword shall never leave thy home. The sword will never leave. You'll live by the sword. Your family will live by the sword. And number six, we see the first, uh, one of the first uh, tragic examples of this. Uh, sin comes home to roost. Uh, this is when Amnon rapes Tamar, and probably very seldom on an overhead in a church will you find these words. Come to bed with me, my sister. That account is found in chapter 13, by the way. Chapter 13, an example of human depravity at its worst. David's son Amnon lusts after his half-sister Tamar. He begs her to sleep with him, and when she refuses, he rapes her. This is tragic and painful to read. Verse 20 says this, and this is one, in my view, one of the most tragic verses in this tragic account. It says, Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house the rest of her life. A desolate woman. She was raped by her half-brother. But it is part of the curse upon David's household for his own sin. Now Absalom, another son, a half-brother to Amnon, and a full brother to Tamar, finds out what Amnon has done, and he resolves to seek revenge for his violated sister, which he later achieves when he kills his half-brother Amnon. He murders him. When Absalom marries and has a daughter, he names her Tamar. I don't know how many of you knew that, but Jonathan, I mean, uh, Absalom names his own daughter after his sister, who he intends to avenge, and he did when he killed Amnon. Chapter 14 tells of the estrangement of Absalom from his father, King David, following Amnon's murder, because David weeps for Amnon. He's furious at what Amnon has done to Tamar, but he takes no action against his son that has done this horrible thing. So we see that David is a rather indulgent father and uh, really not the father that he should be in terms of uh, his own children. Uh, but uh, Absalom flees Jerusalem, and then General Joab arranges to have a woman from Tekoa, we find in chapter 14, meet with David, and in a Nathan-esque parable, persuades the king to accept Absalom back and not harm him as punishment for killing Amnon. Now, we've run out of time, so I want to get these uh, on the... Uh, uh, the remainder is on, on here as quickly as we can uh, because I see the clock is ticking. Uh, number seven is fatal ambition, Absalom's rebellion. And that we find in chapter 15. So he stole the hearts of men. Uh, Absalom is very handsome. He's praised as the most handsome man of all in all of Israel. In chapter 14, verse 25, it says that he's very charming and charismatic. He's very, very ambitious. And uh, so this uh, chapter talks about uh, all of his uh, plans. Chapters 16 and 17 describe the details of Absalom's strategic plan for overthrowing David and ascending to the throne. I found this interesting. It says we read how he tells the people that if he were in charge, the people would receive justice. You think of the coming election in this country. When the people try and bow down to him in admiration and gratitude, he very cleverly refuses their approbation. And instead, like any modern American politician climbing the greasy pole of power, he hugs and kisses the people. So we learn that he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. He gets their loyalty. He can motivate and inspire. Verse 12 says that soon many others also joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum, it says. And then uh, chat number eight, we just have two more. Number eight is losing a son, Absalom's death and David's grief. My son, my son, 
if only I had died instead of you. We read about Absalom's demise, his death, in chapter 18 of Second Samuel. David escapes and Absalom fails in his coup. He doesn't come to the throne. He doesn't overthrow David. David is not killed. The hand of his own son and his army of rebellion. During a battle with some of the king's men, Absalom tries to get away, but his long hair gets caught in a tree and his mule runs away, leaving Absalom suspended in midair. While other soldiers are reluctant to kill the king's son, General Joab doesn't hesitate. Enough of this nonsense, Joab says, and then he throws three daggers into Absalom's heart as he dangles still alive in the great tree. In verse 14, And then ten of Joab's young armor bearers surrounded Absalom and finished him off. They threw his body into a deep pit and covered it with stones. When the soldiers come with the news about the victory that the Israelites had won over the Philistines, David has just one question. The young man, Absalom, is he okay? And David asks this, if you look in that chapter, not once but twice. The young man, Absalom, is he okay? Is he all right? In the opening passage of chapter 19, we learn that as the people heard of the king's deep grief for his son, the joy of that day's victory was turned into deep sadness. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son, it would be better if I had died instead of you. We see the grief of a father losing his own son, even one that was going to overthrow him. And uh, that uh, was not uh, obviously successful. David uh, weeps, and Joab gets after David and says, you know something? Uh, you should be thankful for those of us that killed uh, Absalom and won the victory. It seems that you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. And then finally we see, and I'll close with this because the time has gone over, and I apologize. In chapter 23, number 9 is a reflection on righteousness. David's final words of praise, when one rules over men in righteousness. Talk about beautiful language. Here's part of David's uh, hymn, if you will, to uh, righteous leadership. The one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like a morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. And what we find is that uh, David, in spite of all of his weaknesses and uh, all of his sin, is still a man after God's own heart because he really does uh, believe in righteous leadership and, uh, on the whole, demonstrates that during his 40-year reign. And uh, so I would uh, suggest that you spend some time at home uh, if you wish. My suggestion would be that you pick one of those this week and study it in detail, a lot more detail than we have going through this lickety-split like we do every Sunday. But uh, still, it's a broad overview. It gives you the highlights, and uh, uh, I hope that you enjoy Second Samuel uh, in reading and studying as much as I did in studying and preparing for this little lecture. Uh, it's just a fascinating book. Let's pray.